the book of 2 Samuel 18, verse 1. While you're turning there, I'll ask you to think how many of you were thinking of names that Bob Colby couldn't remember when he was standing up here. You were all thinking of them. I was sitting next to uh, Nate and Jess in the back, and I thought, Bob, don't forget Leon and Mary, Leon and Mary, and, and the names. And, and poor Bob, for the next 24 hours, every 15 minutes, a new name will come to him, <laughs> plaguing that poor man. Isn't the brain a wonder and a trouble all at the same time? It's funny how they were. Bob has never been a thorn in my flesh. For the public record, I will say, he is to me a great blessing. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. 2 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1. Now, uh, remember the context, Absalom is leading a revolt with the majority of the nation of Israel against David, the true king. Uh, and here is the story of the battle. Verse eight, uh, chapter 18, verse 1. David mustered the men who were with him and appointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. David sent out his troops, a third under the command of Joab, a third under Joab's brother Abishai, son of Zeruah, and a third under Ittai the Gittite. The king told the troops, I myself will surely march out with you. But the men said, you must not go out. If we are forced to flee, they won't care about us. Even if half of us die, they won't care. But you are worth 10,000 of us. It would be better now for you to give us support from the city. The king answered, I will do whatever seems best to you. So the king stood beside the gate while all his men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. The king commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, Be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. And all the troops heard the king giving orders concerning Absalom to each of his commanders. David's army marched out of the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. There Israel's troops were routed by David's men, and the casualties that day were great, 20,000 men. The battle spread out over the whole countryside, and the forest swallowed up more men that day than the sword. Now Absalom happened to meet David's men. He was riding his mule, and as the mule went under the thick branches of a large oak, Absalom's hair your translation might say head, got caught in the tree. He was left hanging in midair while the mule he was riding kept on going. When one of the men saw what had happened, he told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in an oak tree. Joab said to the man who had told him this, What? You saw him? Why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Then I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a warrior's belt. But the man replied, even if a thousand shekels were weighed out into my hands, I would not lay a hand on the king's son. In our hearing, the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, protect the young man Absalom for my sake. And if I had put my life in jeopardy, and nothing is hidden from the king, you would have kept your distance from me. Joab said, I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hand and plunged them into Absalom's heart while Absalom was still alive in the oak tree. And ten of Joab's armor bearers surrounded Absalom, struck him, and killed him. Then Joab sounded the trumpet, and the troops stopped pursuing Israel, for Joab halted them. They took Absalom, threw him into a big pit in the forest, and piled up a large heap of rocks over him. Meanwhile, all the Israelites fled to their homes. During his lifetime, Absalom had taken a pillar and erected it in the king's valley as a monument to himself, for he thought... I have no son to carry on the memory of my name. He named the pillar after himself, and it is called Absalom's Monument to this day. 
Now, Ahi Mahaz. I haven't been saying that name very well, I think, as we've been reading it, but I think it's pronounced Ahi Mahaz. Cross it off your list of baby names. Now, Ahi Mahaz, son of Zadok, said, Let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. You are not the one to take the news today, Joab told him. You, must, you may take the news another time, but you must not do so today, because the king's son is dead. Then Joab said to a Cushite, Go tell the king what you have seen. The Cushite bowed down before Joab and ran off. Ahimahaz, son of Zadok, again said to Joab, Come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. But Joab replied, My son, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you a reward. He said, Come what may, I want to run. So Joab said, Run. Then Ahimahaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. While David was sitting between the inner and outer gates, the watchman went up to the roof of the gateway by the wall. As he looked out, he saw a man running alone. The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. And the runner came closer and closer. Then the watchman saw another runner, and he called down to the gatekeeper, look, another man running alone. The king said, he must be bringing good news too. The watchman said, it's, it seems to me that the first runs like Ahimahaz, son of Zadok. Oh, he's a good man, the king said. He comes with good news. Then Ahimahaz called out to the king, All is well! He bowed down before the king with his face to the ground and said, Praise be to the Lord our God. He has delivered up those who have lifted their hands against my lord the king. The king asked, Is the young man Absalom safe? Ahimahaz answered, uh, That's in the Hebrew text. Uh, I saw great confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me, your servant, uh, but I don't, I don't know what it was. The king said, stand aside and wait here. So he stepped aside and stood there. Then the Cushite arrived and said, my lord the king, hear the good news. The lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all who rose up against you. The king asked the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? The Cushite replied, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up to harm you be like that young man. The king was shaken. He went up to the room over the gateway and wept. As he went, he said, Oh, my son, Absalom. My son, my son, Absalom. If only I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. Joab was told, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. And for the whole army, the victory that day was turned into mourning because on, on that day, the troops heard it said, the king is grieving for his son. The men, they stole into the city that day as men steal and who are ashamed when they flee from the battle. The king covered his face and cried aloud, Oh, my son, Absalom! Oh, Absalom, my son, my son! Then Joab went into the house to the king and said, Today you have humiliated all your men who have just saved your life and the lives of your sons, almost all of them, and daughters, and the lives of your wives and concubines. You love those who hate you, and you hate those who love you. You've made it clear today that the commanders and the men mean nothing to you. 
I see that you would be pleased if Absalom were alive today and all of us were dead. Now go out and encourage your men. I swear by the Lord that if you don't go out, not a man will be left with you by nightfall. This will be worse for you than all the calamities that have come on you from your youth till now. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. Meanwhile, the Israelites had fled to their homes. I want to talk to you for just a minute this morning about squinting. Squinting. You know that scrunching up of your face to do, to bring uh, fuzzy pictures into focus? Many of you, uh, along with me, you, you have that little number on your driver's license under restrictions. Number one, in order to safely operate a vehicle in the state of Pennsylvania, I must be wearing corrective lenses. I have contacts. I need them. I need them desperately. If I don't have my contacts in, I have a pair of glasses either on my face or very nearby. Occasionally, in my clumsiness in the morning, when I first wake up, I'll knock the glasses uh, off the bedside table, and then I have to find them on the floor. The problem is, in order to find my glasses, I need my glasses. Some of you don't have problems with, with squinting. You have problems when you read because your arm isn't long enough. Right? I've seen you. I won't make fun of you because very soon this will be me, all right? And, 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 and you can't quite bring into folk. Actually, there's part of me that's looking forward to needing those because you know that a preacher is really serious when he takes off his glasses and he points at you. That's the Holy Spirit at work right there with his glasses just really going for him. Uh, you, you squint, you, you, squint you, you, you stretch your arm in order to bring the world into focus. I think, though, that this squinting is not just limited to your eyes and it's not just a physical thing. I think that sometimes this squinting happens in your mind and your heart. Your heart squints when you try to bring the world as you experience it into focus, too. Your heart and your mind are pattern seekers. They're organs of understanding. And they work really hard to bring order out of the chaos of your life. They look for patterns. Your, your mind wants to connect details and to make sense of your experiences. Do you have someone in your life who at the end of the day or at the end of the week says to you, how was your day? How was your week? And presumably they care about you enough that they are really interested in the real answer. And what they're asking you to do is they're asking you to take all the experiences of your life that have happened to you that week and put some sort of order on them, reach some sort of conclusion. My week was great or my day was terrible. Your mind works at this constantly. Whether you are aware of it or not, you are constantly trying to make sense, uh, make order out of the chaos of your daily experiences. And, and when you can come to some sort of conclusion, that is imminently satisfying. And when you can't figure out the pattern, it is frustrating. Few things are more frustrating than, than not being able to connect the dots of your own experience. You understand that frustration of not being able to connect the dots when you think about your sorrows. When people encounter trouble, one of the first questions they ask is, why? Why did this happen? Help me. I want to be able to connect the dots of my experience. 
If you have a spiritual bent, some of you will say things like, what is God trying to teach me in this? I'm ready to listen. I'm, I'm ready to listen, but I don't understand what he wants me to know, to learn. Few things are as difficult as trying to bear the incredible mystery of sorrow. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about sorrow. And I want to talk about two things in particular. We're going to talk about where sorrow comes from, and then we're going to talk about how our sorrows are soothed. Both of those things, where sorrow comes from and how our sorrows are soothed. It's not difficult. You, you can see why, having just read this passage, we're going to talk about sorrow today. Listen to David, what he says. My son, my son, Absalom. Oh, Absalom. We've seen David grieving before in Samuel. He, when his best friend Jonathan died, David responded by writing this beautiful poem that we read even in the first couple chapters of 2 Samuel. But when his son dies, he's reduced here to this sobbing, broken, lamenting these phrases that he throws out. My son, my son. His sorrow is clearly the emphasis of the text. I know that his sorrow is the emphasis of the text for a couple of different reasons. On, on the one hand, this is a battle story, but it hardly mentions any of the battle details at all. Jesus says this warfare, and we don't know anything about it, a little bit. But one of the things I know is, so David had less numbers than, than Absalom. David's army was smaller than Absalom's. So David picked the battlefield. He decided to fight in the forest, because in the forest, the impact of Absalom's greater numbers would be reduced. It was a great plan. The text doesn't celebrate that very much. 20,000 people died on this day, and we only know about one of them. Remember the story, uh, the phrase narrative selectivity? This is a story about David's sorrow. The second reason that I know that this is a story about David's sorrow is because of the, the detail that goes into these two messengers. Why is that long episode in here? Ahimahaz really wants to go. Joab says, no, you can't. You've got bad news. And, 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 and it's the Cushite. And then we're reading all these verses. And, and, and we're reading them while we know what happened to Absalom. We know that he's dead. But David doesn't know that he's dead. So what's David going to do? And, and the narrator, he won't let us find out. Because he keeps telling us about all these things. He tells us the route that Ahimahaz takes in order to beat the Cushite. He tells him about the conversation with the gatekeeper. He, he, he tells him about Ahimahaz. You know, he finally gets there. Ahimahaz is there. And, and David says, what happened to Absalom? And he says, I don't know. Ah. Delay, delay. It's building suspense on purpose. Because the point of the story is for us to see David at grief, and to enter into his sorrow. See, at the end of the story, the king's crushed, and, and we feel that with him. So we're going to talk about sorrow this morning. First of all, we're going to talk about where sorrow comes from. And we're going to start with David, David's sorrow. David's sorrow is rooted in two things. There's two types of sorrow. David has, first of all, the sorrow of grief. He's experiencing the sorrow of grief David had one priority on this day of battle, that he wanted to make sure that his son's life was spared, that Absalom was treated well. And this raises a great puzzle for us in the text, one we're going to have to think about 
David makes it known to everybody before the battle that his will is that Absalom be treated safe, that he be spared. This is his one decree. Be gentle with the young man Absalom. Now, here's the question. Was that the right command? Should David, was it right for David to issue this order? You should be troubled by this. You should think about this. The text wants you to think about this. On the one hand, Absalom deserves the death penalty. He is a traitor. Without question, he has usurped the throne. He's rebelled against the Lord's anointed king, and he deserves to be executed. The United States Constitution does not deal with crime and punishment very much, but there is one crime in particular that is mentioned, and the crime is treason, and it says the due penalty for death is uh, treason is death. Everybody knows that. Absalom deserves to die. And beyond the realm of the political, there's the, the theological. Absalom has broken God's laws. He dishonored his father. He's been guilty of horrific sexual immorality. Moses instructed the Israelites to stone people like that. As a matter of justice, Absalom deserves to die. And if you have any doubts about that, the narrator makes that very clear. Uh, It tells us uh, that Absalom dies after hanging in the branches of a tree. This has significance in the law of Moses. Look at what Deuteronomy 21 says says, a couple of verses there, if someone guilty of a capital offense is put to death and their body is exposed on a pole, you must not leave the body hanging on the pole overnight. Be sure to bury it that same day because anyone who has hung on a pole is under God's curse. Absalom is cursed hanging there in the tree. Yesterday I was reading a book by John Owen about uh, the Lord Jesus and he writes about how the Lord Jesus Christ himself was hung on a cross in midair between heaven and earth. Because when the Lord Jesus on the cross became the curse for us, he was not fit to be on earth or in heaven. He was rejected by them both. And Absalom here, rejected by both heaven and earth, he's cursed. Then, there's, then he's buried. There's, the text tells us about his burial. In a sense, they put him in a pit and they throw stones on him. He is stoned, in a sense. They pour these rocks on him. He's buried outside the promised land. Here's a man who, in order to memorialize himself, had built a pillar in the city of Jerusalem. So everyone will remember, that's Absalom's monument. So his monument is still there, but his body is gone, it's lost, it's forgotten. The text is is clear. Absalom dies, and it is justice. But, But this is David's son. It's David's son. What's he supposed to do? Have you ever been in a situation where there was a conflict between justice and a member of your family? Have you been in a situation like that? I listened to a podcast recently. It was an interesting story about the a study, really, of the influence that free online pornography has had on the world, the, the effects of it. And one of the episodes focused on a young man, he's uh, 20 now. When he was 18 and a half, he, uh, there was a girl that he was particularly interested in, and he sent her some by text explicit pictures and words that he had learned through watching online pornography. He was 18 and a half at the time, she was 17 and a half at the time. So she showed the pictures to her parents, 
and her parents called the police. It's a terrible crime. He was at school one day, and the police showed up, three cars, lights and sirens blaring, coming to the school to arrest him. He knew why they were there. His mother knew why they were there, uh, but he still called her, and he said, Mom, what do I do? What do I do? And she said, in telling this story, she said, I told him what no mother ever wants to say to her son. I said to him, Son, I need you to go turn yourself in. It's a cautionary tale in many ways. Right? Oh, be careful, little thumbs, what you text. This is David's son. This is his son. On September 5th, 1878, it was a Sunday, Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon called An Anxious Inquiry for a Beloved Son. It was based on David's question in verse 29. Is the young man Absalom safe? He chose that text on September 5th because on September 3rd, there had been a terrible accident in London. There was a cruise ship, it was called the Princess Alice, and it had advertised a special moonlight trip along the Thames. And hundreds of people had gone to experience this beautiful tourist, lovely evening on a cool fall night, this trip out into the Thames. Well, when the Princess Alice got to the middle of the river, it by accident struck a coal ship and sunk and 650 people died. And and Spurgeon preached this sermon because he knew all the people that were gathered on the shore of the Thames River trying to find out, what happened to my son? What happened to my daughter? Are they safe? Are my loved ones safe? And, And Spurgeon said, in this chapter here, David is more a father than a king. Can you blame him for this? So David is experiencing the sorrow of grief. But it's worse than just the sorrow of grief. David is also experiencing the sorrow of discipline. He's experiencing the sorrow of discipline. We've been tracing this for several weeks. So after God made David a great promise in 2 Samuel 7 about David's dynasty and about his great son who would rule forever, um, David uh, had an exemplary kingdom. It lasted, it's described for us in chapters 8 through 10. But then, perhaps toward the end of his life, Uh, David committed adultery and murder. And and God sent the prophet Nathan to him. And Nathan told him this story about a a rich shepherd, a rich man who had stolen a poor shepherd's uh, sheep, his prized sheep. And David was enraged about this theft. And he said, said, uh, uh, that man, that rich man must pay back four times what he stole. He was thundering about that. And, And we have watched David's sons die. Four of them die in the text. There's the son that is the product of his adultery, unnamed in the Bible. And then there's Amnon, Absalom, and Abijah. He dies in the first chapters of, of Kings. So can you, can you hear in David's cries the echo of God's promises about his dynasty? My son, my son, my son. There is a direct line between what David did and what David lost, how he suffered. And that, that connection between these two is drawn explicitly by the prophet Nathan. Which leads me to think about your sorrow. 
Some of you already, some of you, because you have a very tender conscience, you are already trying to make connections in your mind. You're already thinking about your sorrow and you're trying to draw a line back to some sin in your life. You're trying to do that because you're very tender. Some of you are not that tender. God could hit you on the side of the head with a two-by-four and you would ask if he needs something, okay? Some of you are not that tender. Some of you, though, a light bulb goes out in your house and it leads you to lamentation and repentance. You put on sackcloth, you fast, because God is visiting you for your sins. Now, we've thought about this before. This is a very pressing issue. We need to think about this. We have to be clear. In David's life, there is a very clear and direct connection between his sin and his sorrow. Does that connection exist in your life too? And the answer to that question is, maybe. See, this is the main emphasis of the text. This is the warning of the text. David's sin very clearly leads to his sorrow. That's what happens. And you should take this as a warning. This is a warning about the consequences of turning from God. This is very serious. Maybe your sorrow is connected in a straight line to your sin. Maybe. The possibility of that connection is is why James wrote what he did to sick Christians. Uh, Look with me. Um, It's a well-known passage in James 5. I printed it out on the note sheet in your bulletin if you want to follow along. Remember what James said. Look, is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Notice it, see, if, if they have sinned, because it's a possibility that this sickness is related to sin. That's why the word if is there. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why call the elders to pray? I think it's because you need help. Is there a sin underlying the suffering that you need to deal with? It's a possibility. It's not a possibility that you should face alone. God sent David. Now, God, had, God sent David an infallible interpretation through Nathan. You don't have that. I don't have that. But, but do you have someone that you can talk to about this? Is, is there a direct connection between your sin and your sorrow? Maybe. But maybe not. I can give you examples in the Bible that show us, that draw a direct line from your sin to your sorrow, but, but there are a lot of places in the Bible where you, you can't, the Bible explicitly argues that you can't go from the sorrow back to a sin. You can go one direction, but you can't necessarily go the other. One of my favorite examples of this is in John 9. I think I quote this passage at least twice a year. A man born blind comes to Jesus and the disciples ask, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? So they're trying to go from his sorrow back to his sin. They want to draw, Jesus, where's the connection for us? Draw the line. And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Jesus does not draw the line from sorrow back to sin. Instead, Jesus draws the line from his sorrow to the glory of God. That's a much better line to draw, right? 
The whole book of Job is a dialogue about trying to make these connections backward from sorrow to sin. And the argument of Job is, be very careful because your understanding is drastically limited. Remember, brothers and sisters, the Bible tells us that this world is filled with sorrow. This world has been broken by our own rebellion against God. Here's a story in 2 Samuel about this very direct point-to-point connection between sin and sorrow. But the focus of much of the Bible's teaching about sorrow is in a much more general sense. It is as if the world itself is on fire. It has been set on fire. It was set on fire in Genesis 3. We know who struck the match. And the world is burning and all of us have smoke in our eyes and we cough because of that fire that was set of rebellion against God. Uh, Paul wrote about this brokenness back in Romans chapter 8. Look at at verse uh, 18. He says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing the glory with the glory that will will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Look at those words that are in that text. Frustration, subjection, bondage, decay, groaning. Sometimes your life feel that way. These words, you would never use those words, but somebody could say to you, hey, how was your day? And you'd say, frustration, subjection, bondage, decay, groaning. Ever feel that way? There is a point-to-point connection in David's life between his sin and his sorrow. Maybe in your life uh, too, but for all of us, we just live in this atmospheric condition of sorrow. The world's on fire. If you get this, you will be able to understand one of the ways that the Bible's explanation of the world as we know it is superior to other interpretations. This is what the Bible says is wrong with the world. It is frustrating. It is uh, groaning because of the human introduction of sin and things aren't the way they're supposed to be, which is a, a better explanation than other people offer to what's wrong with the world. Uh, let me explain that. Uh, This week I heard a lecture from Mark Farnham. He's a professor at Lancaster Bible College. He's very uh, um, skilled in apologetics. And he said that one of his favorite questions to ask the atheists that he talks to or those who believe in naturalistic evolution, one of his favorite questions that he asks them is why they ever get upset about injustice. Nobody likes injustice. We all hate injustice. We're not happy about injustice. But he says to them, If you believe the world as it is, is the product of billions of years of evolution bounded by natural selection, why are you worried or agitated about injustice? When weak people suffer and die, isn't that natural selection working out the way you think it's supposed to? Shouldn't you stand up and applaud? All right, great, the weak are getting out of the way so the strong can have more resources. This is the way you think the world is supposed to work. So why are you upset about injustice? Who cares if the spotted owl is going extinct or if people are starving in Syria? Natural selection. 
But the reason you think something is wrong, the reason that you get upset about injustice is because planted deep inside your heart and mind is the sense that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. Sorrow is normal. It is regular. It's expected. And if you're a follower of Jesus, it's promised. Now we're going to move from where sorrow comes from to how our sorrows are soothed. How our sorrows are soothed. Now think with me about David here for just a minute. He, after he learns about Absalom, he isolates himself in his grief until Joab comes. And oh, Joab's such an interesting character in this book, isn't he? So a few chapters ago, when Joab thought it was better for David to have Absalom come home, Joab conspired to get Absalom home. And now he thinks that Absalom would be better for David if Joab... If, Joab thinks it would be better for David if Absalom were dead, so he kills him. Well, Joab comes and he scorches David. He just lets him have it. You've humiliated your army. You love Absalom more than you love us. Isn't it interesting? David's only question. When when the messengers come, David says, is Absalom saying? He doesn't ask if how many troops survived. He doesn't ask if Joab is okay. He doesn't ask anything. All he cares about is Absalom. What's wrong with you? If, if you don't get out of this and go out and greet your troops, they're leaving and they're not coming back ever. Sometimes you, you need people in your life like this. Some of you think that's your spiritual gift. Those of you, I'm afraid of you. But, but sometimes we need people like that. Well, look at verse 8, what it says of chapter 19. So the king got up and took his seat in the gateway. When the men were told the king is sitting in the gateway, they all came before him. So David is there. He's, he's sitting there and his troops come before him. Do you think the situation is resolved in David's mind? I think he's happy now? Not really. I mean, he's there. David's sitting there, but he's, he's still broken. We're going to talk about this next week. The, the kingdom is broken too. And after Solomon reigns, the kingdom is going to be broken permanently. Humpty Dumpty sat on a wall. Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. All the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Can David be put back together again? Not really. There's a lesson for us here, and it's not a pleasant one. There are sorrows that you will carry through to the end of your life. There, will bur- there are burdens that you will bear. There are griefs that will come to your mind over and over again. There will be dates on the calendar that, that a month before they come, you will dread them coming, and the day they come, They will be dark, dark days. And that's the way it will be. That's the way it is. You will not be put back together again. At least not in the same way that you are now or that you were before the sorrow happened. The Bible helps us even in that in two different ways. First, it tells us that someday... God is going to wipe away all tears, every tear. 
the promise of Revelation 21, isn't it? I think I wrote that down for you. It says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. This is beautiful, brothers and sisters. He himself, God himself, he sent an angel to tell Mary that Jesus was going to come. Galatians tells us that he gave the law to Moses chiefly through an angel. He sent a prophet to, uh, to uh, uh, rebuke David. Nowadays, he sends elders to shepherd his people. But in that day, in that day, he himself, God himself, will wipe away every tear. It's a privilege that he has reserved for himself in that great day. Beloved, here's one of the reasons why followers of Jesus are patient with hurting people, why we're patient with one another in the midst of our sorrow, why, why Joab is in our go-to move. There's a day that sorrow will be no more, but it is not this day. It's not today. Not now. A few weeks ago, we learned the song, Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor. Uh, we wanted to learn it because I knew that this passage was coming. The last lines of the song, remember this? Christ the sure and steady anchor as we face the wave of death. When these trials give way to glory as we draw our final breath, we will cross that great horizon, clouds behind and life secure, and the calm will be the better for the storms that we endure. Someday, David, someday, he will wipe away every tear. Soon, soon we hope. Soon. That's the promise of the future, but, but the Bible actually tells us something that is more relevant, perhaps even for us today. It tells us that we worship the man of sorrows. I mentioned Charles Spurgeon a few moments ago. When, when he spoke to suffering people, Charles Spurgeon talked about heaven in a way that, that few people can. He, he talked about heaven in an amazing way. One of the, he's always good for a funny line. Whenever Charles Spurgeon talked about heaven, he said, smile to his preachers that he was training. Smile, smile when you talk about heaven as if your greatest joy you were anticipating it. Smile. And then he said, and when you talk about hell, your normal face will do. So Charles Spurgeon could talk about the life that is to come, but he didn't just point people to the future. He pointed people back to the past too. The Lord Jesus is the one who came and he took up our sorrows. He's well acquainted with grief. Listen to what he said one, one sermon. This morning, he said, being myself more than usually compassed with infirmities, I desire to speak as a weak and suffering preacher of that high priest who is full of compassion, the Lord Jesus. And my longing is that any who are low in spirit, faint, despondent, and even out of the way, may take heart to approach the Lord Jesus. Jesus is touched not with a feeling of your strength. He's not impressed by how much you can bench. Jesus is touched not with a feeling of your strength, but of your infirmity. Down here, 
poor, feeble nothings affect the heart of their great priest on high who is crowned with glory and honor. As the mother feels the weakness of her babe, so does Jesus feel with the poorest, saddest, and weakest of his chosen. How often in the Gospels does the Lord Jesus weep? He's a man of sorrows. He's acquainted with grief. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. And then the Bible tells us he did all that was necessary to uproot and destroy them. How? He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. We sorrow because of sin. We sorrow because of our sin. We sorrow because of other sin. We live in a toxic world. But in the cross, the Savior uprooted sin. He bore all of the sorrow and grief our sin naturally deserves. And He died in our place and rose again so that one day we might rejoice with Him in great joy. There's a story that I try to read at this time of year. Um, it's, uh, I, it's, it's a healthy length story. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, bear with me for it. It's, it's not that long. It's, it's called The Ragman, and it's by Walter Wangerin. So uh, listen to this, and I, I, it's good to think about it as Good Friday and Easter approaches. I saw a strange sight. I stumbled upon a story most strange, like nothing in my life, my street sense, my sly tongue had ever prepared me for. Hush, hush, child, now. And listen, and I will tell it to you. Even before the dawn, one Friday morning, I noticed a young man, handsome and strong, walking the alleys of our city. He was pulling an old cart filled with clothes, both bright and new, and he was calling out in a clear tenor voice, Rags! The air was foul, and the first light filthy to be crossed by such Sweet music, rags, new rags for old. I take your tired rags, rags. Now this is a wonder, I thought to myself. For the man stood six feet four and his arms were like tree limbs, hard and muscular, and his eyes flashed intelligence. Could he find no better job than this to be a rag man in the inner city? I followed him. My curiosity drove me, and, and I wasn't disappointed. Soon the ragman saw a woman sitting on her back porch. She was sobbing into a handkerchief, sighing, shedding a thousand tears. Her knees and elbows made a sad X. Her shoulders shook. Her heart was breaking. The ragman stopped his cart. Quietly he walked to the woman, stepping round tin cans, Dead toys, pampers. Give me your rag, he said gently, and I'll give you another. He slipped the handkerchief from her eyes. She looked up and, and he laid across her palm a linen cloth so clean and new that it shined. She blinked from the gift to the giver. Then as he began to pull his cart again, the ragman did a strange thing. He put her stained handkerchief to his own face and then he began to weep, to sob as grievously as she had done, his shoulders shaking, yet she was left without a tear. This is a wonder, I breathed to myself, and I followed the sobbing ragman like a child who cannot turn away from mystery. 
rags, rags, new rags for old. In a little while, when the sky showed gray behind the rooftops and I could see the shredded curtains hanging out black windows, the ragman came upon a girl whose head was wrapped in a bandage, whose eyes were empty. Blood soaked her bandage and a single line of blood ran down her cheek. Now the tall ragman looked upon this girl with pity and he drew a lovely yellow bonnet from his cart. Give me your rag, he said, tracing his own line on her cheek, and I'll give you mine. The child could only gaze at him while he loosened the bandage, removed it and tied it to his own head. The bonnet he set on hers. And I gasped at what I saw. For with the bandage went the wound. Against his brow it ran a darker, more substantial blood, his own. Rags, rags, I take old rags, cried the sobbing, bleeding, strong, intelligent ragman. The sun hurt both my, the sky now and my eyes. The ragman seemed more and more to hurry. Are you going to work? He asked the man who leaned against the telephone pole. The man shook his head. The ragman pressed him, do you have a job? Are you crazy? sneered the other. He pulled away from the pole, revealing the right sleeve of his jacket, flat. The cuffs stuffed into the pocket. He had no arm. So, said the ragman, give me your jacket and I'll give you mine. So much quiet authority in his voice. The one-armed man took off his jacket, so did the ragman, and I trembled at what I saw. For the ragman's arm stayed in, with it in its sleeve, and when the other put it on, he had two good arms, thick as tree limbs, but the ragman had only one. Go to work, he said. After that, he found a drunk lying unconscious beneath an army blanket, an old man, hunched, wizened, and sick. He took that blanket and wrapped it round himself, but for the drunk, he left new clothes. Now I had to run to keep up with the ragman, though he was weeping uncontrollably and bleeding freely at the forehead, pulling his cart with one arm, stumbling for drunkenness, falling again and again, exhausted, old, old and sick. Yet he went with terrible speed. On spider's legs, he skittered through the alleys of the city, this mile and the next until he came to its limits, and then he rushed beyond. I wept to see the change in this man. I hurt to see his sorrow. And yet I needed to see where he was going in such haste. Perhaps to know what drove him so. The little old rag man, he, he came to a landfill, he came to the garbage pits. And I, and I wanted to help him but in, in what little he did, but I hung back hiding. He climbed a hill. With tormented labor, he cleared a little space on that hill. Then he sighed. He lay down. He pillowed his head on a handkerchief and a jacket. He covered his bones with an old army blanket and he died. Oh, how I cried to witness that death. I slumped in a junked car and wailed and mourned as one who has no hope because I had come to love the ragman. Every other face had faded in the wonder of this man and I cherished him, but he died. I sobbed myself to sleep. I did not know. How could I know that I slept through Friday night and Saturday and it's night too, but then on Sunday morning I was wakened by a violence. Light 
pure, hard, demanding light slammed against my sour face. And I blinked and I looked and I saw the first wonder of all. There was the rag man folding the blanket most carefully, a scar on his forehead, but, but alive. And besides that healthy, there was no sign of sorrow or age. And all the rags that he had gathered shined for cleanliness. Well, then I lowered my head and trembling for all that I had seen, I myself walked up to the ragman. I told him my name with shame, for I was a sorry figure next to him. Then I took off all of my clothes in that place and I said to him with dear yearning in my voice, dress me. He dressed me. My Lord, he put new rags on me and I am a wonder beside him. The rag man, the rag man, the Christ. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and we do so with gratitude. We do so with fear. Fear, I suppose, of David and the sorrow that was his as we hear him weeping in that tower for his son. You warn us in your word about the choices that we make and the terrible consequences that they have. And yet, Father, we think with great joy this morning too of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one who came and he brought joy to that woman who was weeping when she left the city of Nain to bury her son. And he he met with those two sisters who were so anxious because their brother was dead. That father who was so afraid because his girl, little girl, was sick Parents who who brought to him a a boy whose life had been overtaken by an evil spirit. The Lord Jesus in every instance brought hope and life and light, brought an end to the sorrow of these losses and diseases. Oh Lord, we look forward to the day when you walk the face of the earth again and creation responds to your presence with with joy and there'll be life and hope and healing and health. No more tears, no more sorrow. Lord, we pray in anticipation of that great day. We pray that it would come soon. Father, I pray that you would soothe our sorrows today by enabling us to remember that the Lord Jesus is the man of sorrows who's acquainted with all of our griefs. And he is with us as he promised he would be. We give you thanks. We pray these things in the name of the Lord Jesus, saying, Amen.